This is Inside Geneva. I'm your host, Imogen Folks, and this is a Swiss Info production. In today's programme... We believe that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Centre in New York. I care. I want my government to fight terrorism. I want those who did 9-11 or whatever terrorist attacks uh, to be brought to justice. And you're looking at the uh, World Trade Center. We understand that a plane has crashed into the World Trade Center. We must find terror where it exists and pull it out by the roots and bring it to justice. Terror is evil. The criminalization of lawful acts under protected under international law, speech, assembly, political participation, those are all defined by multiple governments as terrorism. Waterboarding is your minor form. Some people say it's not actually torture. What do you think of waterboarding? Absolutely fine, but we should go much stronger than waterboarding. That's the way I feel. They're chopping off heads. 9-11 was like an earthquake to human rights, and the house and the facade still looks good. Legally speaking, we still have an absolute prohibition on torture, but the facade is there, but the cracks in the houses are there. Hello and welcome to Inside Geneva. In today's programme, it's 20 years since 9-11, the single most deadly act of terrorism the world has ever seen, and it triggered what came to be known as the War on Terror. Now, that war has brought an awful lot of changes to our lives, and some of them are changes we might not even be aware of. Now, to discuss those changes, and in particular, the implications for human rights, I'm joined today by Finulani Aloin. She is the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Counterterrorism, and Gerald Stabarok, Secretary General of the World Organization Against Torture. To begin, because this was such a moment in all our lives, 9-11, and to try maybe to go back to that moment and understand some of the consequences we're going to look at, I'm going to ask you both first where you were on that day. Fanula, I'll come to you first. I was in a maternity hospital in Belfast. I had just given birth to my first, my eldest child. And my husband and I had lived and worked in New York for a very long time. I had taught at Columbia Law School. And so I was, I woke up that morning in Belfast and um, worried about my friends. I have a sister who lived, who lived at that time quite close to the World Trade Center. And so woke up to this baby in my arms. But um, watching the world crumble. Gerald, about you? I think I think you're right with this question because this is one of the moments I think that you will always remember. On a positive side, I remember something like the fall of the wall 10 years earlier as a German, but I will always remember 9-11. I was working at the OC office for human rights and democratization in Warsaw, and we were preparing for a big human rights conference, and our communications and spokespeople were next door. They had a screen. So um, they came in and said something unbelievable is happening. And then we walked to the room and just in that moment, the second plane crashed into the second tower. And I remember the shock, the disbelief of what we saw. What is this? Where does it come from? What is this all meant to be? But I also soon remember that we had in the evening, we went, came together and we were all, all wondering, how is the world changing? But I also remember the solidarity that we felt with the American colleagues at that time. And it, I think, sadly, some of that joint feeling of this moment and joint walking on the response to this moment has been lost pretty quickly. 
for me, I was a journalist as I still am now. I was out on an assignment, interestingly, in um, an asylum seekers hostel in Switzerland. And like you, Gerald, I arrived to find everybody watching the TV. And as I went in, again, the second plane crashed and I, um, I had to leave again. And I went back to our newsroom and a colleague said to me, well, that's it, Imogen. Our world has changed forever. And I was like so shocked by the immediate events that I didn't get it. I didn't get it until quite a while after. But in fact, things really did change, didn't they? From how we travel, even little things like that, having to take your shoes off, you know, things you can't take on a plane anymore. But much bigger things too. And Fanula, of course, your, your mandate as UN Special Rapporteur, of course, did not exist in 2001. It was created in response to the war on terror. And that, that's what I'd quite like to hear a bit more from you about. What in particular, almost 20 years ago, what were the things happening that made UN Human Rights member states think we need a new Special Rapporteur on this? Yeah, it's a good question, Imogen, because it's important to know that the mandate I hold wasn't created until five years after 9-11. And in that absence is the story of a human rights free zone between the events of 9-11 and a recognition a number of years later of the systemization of human severe undulating human rights violations in between. Right after those catastrophic events, as you'll recall, the then president of the United States essentially said, you're either with us or against us. There's no shades of gray in this war against terror. Either you're with the United States or you're not with the United States. And what we know happened relatively quickly, as Gerald's organization knows, is that the United States moved to engage in practices of torture, of rendition, of the establishment of black holes where people were held arbitrarily for days, months, weeks. And of course, the enduring existence of Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where 39 men, many of whom have never been charged with any crime, continue to linger uh, on the edge of the United States. And so the mandate was created because a small group of countries led by Mexico, surprisingly, not the states you would think, not our allies, not the states who say they care about human rights, but a small group of states led the charge. And it's important to remember that the United States was vehemently opposed to the establishment of this mandate when it was created. And of course, as we know now, many of the states who had cooperated and engaged in the practices and supported rendition were also opposed to the establishment of this mandate. So this mandate had a very bumpy birth because states didn't want it. And actually, I suspect many states still don't want it because they view counterterrorism as a human rights free zone. A familiar sound for the detainees at Guantanamo Bay. Hundreds of people, all men from more than 40 nations, brought halfway around the world to give up their secrets to American interrogators. It's interesting you say it took five years to get that mandate created. Because I remember, you know, 2002, 2003, there was, and we'll come also to Afghanistan a bit later in the program, there was, of course, the fall of the Taliban in Afghanistan, the, the war against uh, supposedly al-Qaeda. But then there started to be murmurings. I remember a source from the International Committee of the Red Cross phoned me up once and he said, you know, off the record, but, you know, maybe you want to look into this too. People are leaving 
Afghanistan, and we don't know where they're being taken. We don't know where they are. They're supposedly prisoners of war or enemy combatants, and we're supposed to be able to visit them. We don't know where they are. Maybe Diego Garcia, he said. So that was the kind of confusion, 2003, 2004. Gerald, I'm wondering, from your point of view, you know, years in human rights defender, when did you start to think, this is looking not ideal? Well, I think the sad thing about the reaction that came then in the name of responding to what essentially is a denial of the very values of human rights and its basis, that there was another attack on human rights through counterterrorism. It's, 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 it's a very sad message, but I think there may be not immediately signs that extraordinary renditions, torture policies would happen the way we discover them later. But there were clear warning signs when you were working, for example, like I did in the OSC Office for Democratic Institutions and Human Rights. It's a security organization. It was clear that the voice of human rights was simply swept away immediately. And that happened to human rights organizations as well. And I think that's also important to remember. The Bush administration's war on terror was not just a set of measures that were taken, but it was a philosophy in a way. A philosophy said that you know, human rights were for the good days. They are something for naive people, even if they have been created during the Cold War when there were nuclear threats and other things. But the discourse was so sweeping away and you could sense that something bad is happening. Sleeping, eating and praying alone in a six by eight foot cell. We're not at the least bit interested in any kind of rehabilitation. We don't do that here. The mission here is intelligent. This is not controlled drowning. It is drowning in the end. The waterboarding procedure has never been demonstrated. But I think it also took time for the human rights community to find a voice. Maybe also because we were not prepared to think that Western democracies can commit these, these crimes. Uh, and I think it took a way of reckoning, maybe especially in the US human rights community, to come to terms to that. Inherently, we believed our democracies with all the schizophrenias, with all the double standards, are for the good. And we had to realize, no, something is happening that basically says human rights don't matter anymore. And fighting back that, that sort of discourse is, I think, one of the legacies. It's hard, though, isn't it? I mean, people want to feel safe. And you imagine the trauma that people all over the world felt watching those planes. No government ever wants to have that happen on their soil, ever again. They're going to do everything in their power to prevent it. And your average citizen is going to say, yes, please do. I don't want that. I mean, how do you counter that that feeling, Finula? Well, I grew up in Belfast. So I would say when we learn the lessons of what happens over a long, long time when rights are abused, what you learn is that it perpetuates conflict. We have, we have data from so many places before 9-11 that tells us that actually it's counterproductive to security to violate human rights. I, I often feel a special rapporteur. I don't make human rights arguments around protecting human rights. I make security arguments around human rights for protecting human rights because actually the cost of doing that, those kinds of harm creates the conditions conducive to more violence. And those of us who've watched the rise of global jihadism over the 20 years can see a linear relationship between the scale of the abuses, the kind of how it fed 
the kind of enemy discontent and alienation from so-called Western democracies, precisely because of this gap between the rhetoric of values and human rights and rule of law and what was being practiced by those states on other territories in the name of protecting those things. Well, there was a chilling new terror warning from the government this morning. Yeah, we've seen a terrorist with the shoe bombs, of course. There was the infamous underwear bomber. Now, though, there is talk of a surgically implanted explosive. A Islamic State has no borders. It's an ideology of hate that's spreading across the world from its headquarters. I think leadership plays an extraordinarily important role. Um, I think of countries who've experienced horrific violations on their territory. I want to mention New Zealand and think of the kind of modeling we saw on the response to a, to a violent attack on human rights, as Jared said, in New Zealand. It was a message of tolerance, of dignity, not of othering the community who, who experienced the harm. And I think that is what's been absent for 20 years. That kind of modeling would be the thing that would actually have made a difference post 9-11. And instead, what we got, not only did we get a war on terror, but we got the global profiling and marginalization of Muslim minority communities. We got the kind of language that essentially empowered the new authoritarians. One of the profound legacies of that kind of fear-based language that you've described, Imogen, is that it empowers the authoritarian. This has now turned into a piece of legislation that broadly defines acts disturbing public order as terrorism. Those found guilty of forming or leading a group the government considers a terrorist entity are punishable by death or life in prison. The age of just 15, Berevan has been jailed for nearly eight years on charges of supporting a terrorist organisation. And so right now, in any country in the world, pick it, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Egypt, and more, we see governments saying that human rights defenders are terrorists, that echo warriors are terrorists, that women's rights defenders are terrorists, because they've understood that that language gives them power to do a great deal without any accountability. And so that's why this fear language is a gift to those who would undo us. But... The fear language, I mean, it gets a response from people. I want to mention a study which the International Committee of the Red Cross did back in 2016, where they asked younger people, pretty much under the age of 30, their attitudes to torture. And in wealthier countries, in the United States and in Britain, for example, there was this feeling that torture could sometimes be justified. If the results of torture help solve or help prevent something, then I guess it's it's actually good. But uh, on just a general principle note, but I, I can see why it's used. Whether torture is ever acceptable in any form, I think as much as I'd love to say no, it's not. I think if you know someone's done something terrible and they've inflicted pain on someone, they've they've done the most horrendous things. I lean towards the side of they should suffer as well. We need torture to get answers. Unfortunately, it's just part of part of war. Would I want to do it? No, but someone has to do it. Gerald, I mean, your organization is dedicated to preventing torture. You must have been dismayed when you heard those reactions. Well, I think for us, I think 9-11 and the torture policies 
because they provide the framework for also the, the discourses and the public change are probably the, the challenge of the decade. And we still feel the consequences of it. It's Sometimes I say um, 9-11 was like an earthquake to human rights and the house and the facade still looks good. Legally speaking, we still have an absolute prohibition on torture. But the facade is there, but the cracks in the houses are there. And I think this is because there is a taboo break that happened and we haven't re-tabooed in a way the absolute prohibition the way we have to do. We have the ongoing policies that produce torture and impunity. And, and that, too, in the context of Afghanistan, we should not forget. What is the legitimacy at the moment of the U.S. speaking to the Taliban about torture and human rights policies if the Taliban themselves were subjugated to torture in some ways? But there is a perception problem. And, of course, it's very shocking that, especially in Western countries, this changed. Actually, it's interesting that in those countries where torture is rampant, that if you're picked up by your police, there's an expectation that you will be abused. In those countries, it's not changing as much as in the West, where it remains almost an abstract fear. And I think this is also what 9-11 is to me. I grew up in Germany. It was just the Red Army that we lived with when I was a child, but I remember it. And somehow we could identify what the threat was. We could sort of understand why there is sympathy in some corners to it. The, the, the challenge with the, the jihadist terrorism post 9-11 is it's very abstract to us. We don't really sense where it comes from. We don't understand that there is a community of support that messages to them, etc. So the fact that we don't really know what the threat is and where it comes from makes it even more fearful to us, I fear. And, and for, for me, of course, the real question is how we change that perception. You mentioned the sort of ticking bomb type of scenario. It's a terrible debate in any, any media interview you get into. But it's also a false one because the torture that happened is not that scenario. Uh, but how do we make a clear case to people that if you want to be successful in fighting terrorism, you have to have some foundations? And here I get back to what Fionola said early on. Terrorism and counterterrorism is a generational issue. It never goes away quickly. And if we get it wrong, we will have two generations to deal with it. And we get it wrong if we overreact with policies, laws, human rights violations, as it happened. Don't tell me it doesn't work. Torture works, okay, folks? Torture, you know, have these guys... Torture doesn't work. Believe me, it works, okay? What I wanted to give you the opportunity to do as well, though, Gerald, is to make the argument against torture not just from the moral and ethical, although obviously you share that view, the practical level, it doesn't actually work. Well, whether it works or not, I don't know. I mean, uh, when, when we speak about slavery, maybe slavery worked economically, but we haven't outlawed it because it's not effective. We outlawed it because it's wrong. And I think with torture, it's the same. But of course, you do find the US Senate investigation that said that there are no credible external intelligence that has been gathered through these torture policies. But you also have um, Fiona Alla. I remember in, in a previous work that we did, there was a study to look at the impact of counterterrorism in human rights. And they went to Northern Ireland to have a hearing of what can we learn from the past for today. And I do remember that there was the chief security officer who said, well, preventive detention, the torture techniques were a disaster, both from a security and human rights perspective. And it was not human rights people saying that, but security people because it actually made the cause much broader. It made the problem much bigger. And I think making that argument is maybe sometimes a little bit tedious and difficult, 
but there's no alternative to it. So wherever you go, you will see that by basically victimizing people, uh, you weaken the cause. And I think the best answer to terrorism is to demask it as killings and not to allow it to hide behind the ideology. And if you apply these special rules, you basically allow it to hide as a victim behind ideology. Demask it in an ordinary criminal process, bring people to justice, punish them, stick to your rules. The, the whole idea when uh, ex-president Trump spoke on this issue that uh, we defeat Al-Qaeda because we're more brutal than Al-Qaeda is just nonsense. Fanula, maybe your reaction to that, but also another question that I have. Have we got a problem with the terminology, the war on terror? Gerald says treating it as crimes, you know, violent crimes, killings. The war on terror is something so open-ended, you know, we're never going to know whether it's been won or not, are we? So we're not. And of course, you know, at one level, President Obama, when he was president, said we don't use that terminology anymore. We've discarded that terminology because I think at some pragmatic level, the then U.S. administration kind of understood that it wasn't working for them anymore. But I think what has worked and what we've seen the export from the United States almost to the world through the United Nations, through the U.N. system is the kind of the legitimization of terror, counter-terrorism as a discourse, the permissive space that's been created by a series of UN Security Council resolutions that tells every state that they must have counter-terrorism legislation, even states who don't have what we might call reasonably or empirically call a terrorist threat. And the result is that, you know, states' power is opportunistic. It sees open space. It, it, it eyes up greedily the opportunity to use powers that it is authorized to do by the global community. So the global counterterrorism architecture has bedded in past the point where the war on terror, sort of that language ceased to be used. And that's an enabling architecture. This is the language that we see used in the prevention of terrorism in Sri Lanka. It's the language that we see being used increasingly in, in countries like Turkey, where again, the criminalization of lawful acts under protected under international law, speech, assembly, political participation, those are all defined by multiple governments as terrorism. And nobody ever calls it out because we have a perfect gentleman's agreement and it is a gentleman's agreement because it is the boys who negotiated this amongst themselves, which is that nobody ever, ever calls out anybody on their definition of terrorism. And of course, it cheapens the, the language is meaningless anymore. The word simply means I will criminalize what you do and use this language, which gives me essentially a get out of a free pass on being accountable for the use of that language and all the abuses that follow from it. Gerald, I saw you nodding vigorously during those comments from Fanula. We're getting close to the end of the program. I want to ask you, you also, are you concerned by the terminology of the war on terror? I think that the terminology is a problem for many, many perspectives. Um, I, once, I remember speaking to a former Chief Justice of South Africa, who was a lawyer of Mandela, who said that whenever you use the term war already for the judiciary, the sort of lenses change. And the perception, the, the, the credit you give to the executive already changes. But in the U.S. context, of course, the idea is basically, or wars under the Bush administration, that uh, this is a global battlefield with an unidentified territory of battlefield with an unidentified uh, actor, etc. And basically, 
uh, it's a war, but we don't apply the rules of the war um, and, and human rights law don't apply either. So I think it's a very dangerous legal concept as well. And some reminiscence of those are still there. So I, I urge always my colleagues not to use the term war on terror because it's very convenient also to use it because it changes the way we look at things. But I also wanted to add on, 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 on what we just heard. I mean, I find it's tremendously sad what happened. I care. I want my government to fight terrorism. I want those who did 9-11 or whatever terrorist attacks to be brought to justice. I want this to be done in my name. I care about this. And what we see is actually this sort of willful openness where this authority that somehow stems from us is taken to criminalize human rights defenders, uh, to criminalize opposition. And, and indeed, uh, the UN structures have been created to fight terrorism. Their authority is used, and when it is abused, it is silent. And that's not acceptable. Uh, take China. China uses in Hong Kong an anti-terrorism legislation and discourse. Take, um, take Egypt. You can go all over the world. And with Afghanistan as one of the reasons for a global agenda on terrorism falling apart, it looks very pale what remains. Because what remains is, in a way, 20 years of repressive security legislation that was not taking account human rights. And I think we've lost this ground. We were together 9-11. We saw what was happening. We felt solidarity. We felt repudiation. And I think we've lost this ground. And to me, as a human rights advocate, this is dramatic and it's very sad. Apart from the cracks in the human rights framework, it has left like on torture. America's last foothold in Afghanistan is now guarded by the Taliban. At Kabul International Airport, time is running out. The U.S. and NATO allies have just one week to pull out all their citizens and vulnerable Afghans after the Taliban... You can hear gunshots every couple minutes. Fanula, last words from you then. The war on terror, of course, the first battle was in Afghanistan. And 20 years later, ironically, as Gerald says, but also tragically, we are back there. Have we learned no lessons? Can we learn anything from this? We appear not to have learned any lessons. What we appear to be doing is betraying civil society, leaving women, human rights defenders and girls as the front line of defence against an entity whose members and associated entities are listed as terrorists under UN-designated lists and US lists. Um, we appear to have learned that what we do is we, we don't include human rights in the deals we make with these organizations. And we stop talking about the violations that they've committed when we conveniently decide that we've had enough and it's time for us to leave. And so I think today many human rights defenders, and I include Harold and I in that, are profoundly saddened and disappointed. I mean, we're used to the Sisyphean fight. If you fight for human rights, you're always pushing big rocks up mountains and you watch them fall down and you push the same rocks up the mountain again. I think those of us who work on human rights in the context of counterterrorism are looking at an enormous big rock that just rolled down a mountain. And we will stand shoulder to shoulder with the human rights advocates in Afghanistan. Many of them won't be leaving. Many of them will be at risk and they will need our support and they will need our help and they will need our protection. But the international community is neither safer nor is it human rights compliant in the actions that we've seen happen in the last weeks and months in Afghanistan. 
And they won't be forgotten. They certainly won't be forgotten by those on the ground who are most at risk. Brief last couple of words from you, Gerald. You'll be pushing rocks up that hill with with Finula, I guess. I hope so. And I'm glad to have her as a companion in this. But uh, no, I think the, 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 the one big lesson that we have to learn every day is to fight for human rights. And the one big lesson in this is that if you want to be successful in fighting terrorism, you have to be faithful to your foundations. And, and human rights are some of the foundations in whose name we engaged in some of these places. And we can't betray them. And I think we have to fix these cracks in the walls that I mentioned earlier, because they are still there. Otherwise, at some point, the house falls apart. And I think that you have to build the foundations and build the consensus. And sometimes a disaster is also a place for learning positively. So I think we got it wrong for the last 20 years in UN counterterrorism and global counterterrorism. That's a moment to build something that has a real value. Maybe it's illusionary, but we drive to do it. Thought-provoking discussion there. Finula Nieloin, Gerald Stabrock, thank you very much for joining me. And to everybody out there, thank you for listening to Inside Geneva. A reminder, you've been listening to Inside Geneva, a Swiss Info production. You can email us on insidegeneva at swissinfo.ch and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Let us know what you think of the programme and check out our previous episodes from a long, hard look at the United Nations, now it's 75, to an account of 10 years of war in Syria, to the history of how the international treaties on landmines and on enforced disappearances came about. And coming up in the next few weeks, killer robots are back on the negotiating table in Geneva. Will campaigners succeed in getting a ban? Ahead of the climate summit in November, what outcome do humanitarian agencies hope for? And are we getting humanitarian work wrong? We'll be asking two experts why they think aid needs to be decolonized. I'm Imogen Folks. Thank you for listening and do join us again on Inside Geneva. Discover science and innovation in Switzerland with the Swiss Connection podcast. In the current series, we visit CERN and explore what they're up to next in their quest to solve the mysteries of the universe. We uncover groundbreaking discoveries in a Roman archaeological site and get the first glimpse of an exciting supersonic plane powered by hydrogen. From the tiniest particles to the vastness of space, satisfy your scientific curiosity by listening to the Swiss Connection podcast for a mind-expanding experience with Swiss Info. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to follow or subscribe to get your latest episode on time.